Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. Once again, it is time for Cody Townsend and me to review the news of the outdoor industry. And as always, some news that doesn't really relate to anything whatsoever. So that is what we have on tap for you today. And the one thing we should point out, we were remiss in talking about it. I can't believe Cody in particular forgot to bring this up and bask in his correctness on this thing. But if you recall, I think it was in last month's reviewing the news, we were talking about movie remakes and I know many of you have seen the news because many of you wrote me to say that we are getting a Ferris Bueller remake. I said that wasn't going to happen, that it shouldn't happen. Cody was saying that it was going to happen. So, man, Cody was right for once. What's that thing they say about, like, even a broken clock? Something, something? Yeah. Anyway, we've got a whole lot of interesting topics that we touch on in this conversation, and so let's just go ahead and review some news. Here we go. All right, Cody Townsend, it is Friday morning, September 2nd. It is time for us to review the news, and we actually just finished up a conversation about how we aren't sleeping that much, either one of us. So I'm very happy to be on my fourth cup of coffee this morning. <laughs> and we're just powering our way through this. I want to give a shout out. Sander Hadley was privately shaming me about my lack of sleep. I feel like I should out him to the world for, you know, sleep shaming. That said, I'm very happy to be drinking this uh, medium roast, Colombian washed roast from uh, Mountain Dweller, our friends in Frisco, Colorado. And I'm definitely going to have like four more of these today. That's all I have to say on this. Talk about yeah. your own sleep struggles, Cody. <laughs> yeah, well, you're kind of defining why you might not be sleeping just in what you just said. Um, why I'm not sleeping is like kind of a mystery, but I guess it is probably the same factor. Like you've got a baby and now you're producing this winter buyer guide and yeah. that's a lot of stress and a lot of work. And I've got like an actual, actual baby, baby, yeah, like a real baby. And I wake <laughs> up every morning at 545 uh, to... to deal with him feed him clean him clean his poop off his butt and all that stuff um but yeah i don't know why like i do everything right like i actually drink i drink one cup of coffee in the morning it is a big cup um but it's just one cup i'm not drinking right now not for any reason like specifically but i yeah. just like i don't know taking breaks don't, just don't feel like drinking yeah um so there's that factor into it i'm eating zero sugar like no sugar whatsoever but that's on purpose just because sugar is really bad for you and yet here i am like i'll like be so tired at nine at night and all of a sudden i'm like laying there till 10 45 and you just start doing the math backwards of how little sleep you're starting to get having to wake up at 5 45 so yeah i don't know the cycles of this is maybe just what it's like getting older you just sleep less and you just deal with it <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know um but all i know is sander you should start shaming cody about yeah. his lack of sleep not just me second big thing which you just dropped on me right as we hit the record button you went skiing yeah, I did. I went skiing, was it last weekend or the weekend before? Recently. I went skiing very, very recently. 
Is this all we get? Is this yeah, all? that's all you got. It just went skiing. No, I went up to Hood for the weekend. Um, it was actually for a Smith photo and video shoot that we had to do. Um, I've been designing a secret product that I'm not allowed to talk about for the last year and a half. And we finally got like the samples in and and uh, went up there to go shoot it. We were supposed to go to South America. Like I was supposed to go down and uh be in Portillo and coach with Dav on the the superstars camp that he, he talked about on the last pod and then do a shoot down there. But just with the lack of childcare, leaving Elise home for weeks on end. And just like, honestly, I am trying to not fly as much as I can to not to limit to those international travels. So it's like, if there is an option to do something like a photo shoot that just requires a little bit of snow in the background, like let's try and do it locally. So just drove up to hood, uh, went and climbed and skied hood, not to the top because it's just way too dangerous of time of year. It's just way too much rock fall, but, um, but it was nice. We went up and set up a tent and camped pretty high on the mountain, made some turns, ski toured it felt fun I, I was like kind of back to that like oh yeah i really like this <laughs> i love camping high in the mountains i love ski touring i love making turns back down this is really enjoyable that's excellent wow everybody i know is getting back on snow yeah well we got a, a bit of time like we're in a massive heat wave right now so mm. it does not feel like winter is coming anytime soon hey two quick things that i've I'm just personally telling you, but then I guess some other people will hear this. So today, like as we are talking right now, we're going live with a Gear 30 episode. We're doing a kind of mini series on boot fitting Mm. and kicking things off is our reviewer, Kara Williard, a boot fitter, great boot fitter in her own right, talking with Sam Tischendorf, who is a master boot fitter and... It's really cool. So we have two women leading off our series on boot fitting. And I'm very proud of that because these people are smart as hell, which people will be able to go listen for themselves. And uh, you don't have to take my word for it. But pretty cool in a in an art that has been so defined by much older people, right? And much older men. And thank God for them. They have taught so much, you know, to the world about boot fitting, but pretty fun to kick off the series this way. And it's going to just be one of those things for like ski boot dorks, Mm -hmm. which is me, (laughs) which is you. (laughs) I think it's going to be a really good series. We're pretty excited about it. Now that said, I recorded another gear 30 conversation last night that might be the nerdiest gear 30 episode we've ever done. And we are just going straight down the rabbit hole in terms of like thinking through the role of engineering and research mm-hmm. as it comes to actual manufacturers uh, of products that they need to go sell to the public, right? Because they're running a business and that, you know, so it was this very interesting and very nerdy conversation about engineering slash research versus, say, manufacturers who yeah incorporate engineering but ultimately it's about finding products that will resonate with a market you know market and marketplace that they Mm -hmm. need to sell so there you go it sounds fascinating because i was actually recently having this talk we was on hood and we were talking about 
uh, corporate structures and how that works for product development. Mm -hmm. And so there's like kind of three major ways and that you can kind of develop product. And there's three kind of almost factions within a company that will lead on product. So most people think it's just like, oh, it's product engineers and you just make a product and then they market it and then they sell it. Well, it doesn't quite always work like that. And companies set themselves up to I don't know, best represent what are their goals. So there are certain companies that will lead with sales. There are certain companies that lead with marketing. And then there's certain companies that lead with product. And we were having this big debate on which is the best way to do it because there's arguments for each one. Obviously, yep. you lead with sales. You're saying like, well, we're a company. We're trying to make money. So yep. we're going to lead with what we kind of know sells. Um, Unfortunately, that tends to be pretty backward facing marketing. Leading with marketing is a little bit more forward thinking, but it starts to limit you in certain ways because you're doing like market research, you're doing trend analysis, you're trying to see what's like a year ahead, and then you're fitting the product into your vision. And then engineering and product design forward is obviously just you're like tweaking with stuff, you're making stuff, you're creating cool shit, but it might actually not even like be desired by the 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 uh marketplace yep. so we were having a big interesting talk about like which is the best way to set your company up um obviously collaborative seems like the best yep. but it's pretty hard to actually pull off yep. and how you lead your company and how you have to uh, create your structure really really defines the products that are going to come out mm -hmm. so you should have been in on that conversation last night. I probably would like to. I'll probably <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> okay. Well, next time, maybe we'll bring you in. Anyway, those are two Gear 30 episodes that I'm really proud of. And um, yeah, the boot fitting one drops like right now. So that will be live by the time people hear this on Monday. And then the engineering nerd conversation goes up the following week. So um, anyway, good Gear 30 things happening. Cool. Good, good. All right, what are we doing here? Where are we starting with the news, Cody? Yeah, so let's review August news. Definitely a bit of a slower month in general, just for ski news. Um, I This was funny. It's kind of, uh, there's this like little Twitter thing going around. It was like, rank your months. Like, what is your favorite month? Huh. And I will say August was 12. And I think it just <laughs> like, it, it feels like it. It feels like the most dead time. It feels still like quite a far ways to winter, but you're in the doldrums of summer. So when it comes to like winter ski outdoor news, it feels like we're in the doldrums right now. So we're a little bit of scratching here, but there are some really good topics um, to talk about. Um, the first one, we're going to start it off with Blevins Corner. Um, and the headline is national ski patrol is a mess or, or pretty not that that's not the headline. That's the summation <laughs> that you put in our document. It's Colorado based national ski patrol in turmoil as third director in five year leaves citing conflict. Yeah. Um, this was one that you kind of, you put in there and something that I've kind of known about and hear a little bit of chatter about for, for a number of years now, um, but it doesn't make it too much into, let's say, mainstream news yep. or outdoor news, just because it seems kind of internal. Um, and Blevins did a very good job of bringing some of these internal kind of strifes and these conflicts and these things that have been going on for a very long time to the forefront, um, mainly just bringing up that it's, God, it's 
been a very dysfunctional organization. Um, you know, bringing up the fact that in 2014 there was an article talking about how this the National Ski Patrol was in chaos and needed to uh, completely rechange its board structure and just like was needed it's very strict kind of um, oversight. And then here we are in 2022 and the same issues plague it. So um, kind of an interesting article just to the fact that probably most people don't know about this. And it brings up a lot of of, of talk about what's going on within, at the National Ski Patrol. But the question to me, like there isn't too much to debate, I guess, about this because it's just very much bringing up some of the internal strifes with the National Ski Patrol. But from your perspective, what is the value of the National Ski Patrol in this day and age? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's a really good question. And more honestly, this was actually not really on my radar until reading Jason Blevins' article. And so, you know, somewhat interesting. Uh, not that I have my, you know, finger on the pulse of everything happening in the ski industry, but I was like, okay, so that I'm not that familiar with the National Ski Patrol is sort of telling, maybe? Yeah, I, I believe, yeah, it is kind of telling because, like, w there's the pro patrollers that right. we all know that, that, right. that work for the ski area. And then there's people at the ski resort that have a slightly different cross on their back and a slightly different shade red jacket, and they're the National Ski Patrol. And when I grew up, all I remember was thinking was like, no, these volunteers, they don't really get it. Like the pro patrollers are the ones doing the, the, the work and the national ski patrol is the one policing the, the mountain run and telling you to slow down and trying to pull your pass, even though they had no authority to actually pull your pass. And it was always like, there's this weird thing where like, what is this? Why are these volunteer patrol here and the pro patrol? Yeah. yeah. Um, and to be honest, too, I still don't know that much about it other than reading articles like this and seeing that, like, it's kind of a dysfunctional organization the way it's framed. Well, yeah, or worse yes. than that. I think there's at least two important things to think through here. So on the one hand is kind of the question of, wait, why do we have a volunteer organization that is sort of there alongside a professional paid patrol, you know, and I think we have talked about in multiple episodes of reviewing the news that we are fans of and support a kind of volunteer culture in a number of elements. And yet when it comes to the work of ski patrollers, which we have also talked about, like, this is an important profession, very important profession. Does it even make sense that you would have, like, we don't have volunteer surgeons, right, that kind of show up alongside the paid surgeons? And so that's what, you know, just I personally want to think through. Does it make sense to have volunteers alongside certain paid professions. And in this case, I'm not sure, you know, and should it be a model where we just have a hundred percent paid patrollers? And then if people want to come back into like, well, certain ski areas simply could not afford to do that. Well, then that's a question I think we need to think through, but 
it almost feels like, you know, if we're talking about, I mean, man, this just starts actually getting into so many conversations we've had, like talking about mom and pop ski areas versus very much big corporate entity ski areas. And it feels like a national ski patrol, a stronger justification for it makes more sense when we are talking about like if you and I started uh, like a backyard ski hill with one chairlift and it's like, yeah, we are not making any money off this. Absolutely. We probably would have to create, you know, a volunteer structure of some sort if the community was interested in that. But then what does that mean to broaden out and and have a national organization for this? I'm going to stop talking. What are your thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, it brings up this really interesting kind of the book I just recently read, the uh, the Dawn of Everything by David Graeber, which is just this like huge anthropology book and goes into a lot of cultures. And it goes into a lot of the value of volunteering, of like structured time in people's culture that gives back to the community. And we see that in many different forms. We still see it in many different forms of, of modern day society. So there's parts of it where you're like, yeah, like if there is a mom and pop ski area, this is like something that is kind of good for the skier, the, the the community being that there's like one one chairlift, like you're saying. It's something that just people go out on the weekends with their kids and get to be outside. And then there's some volunteers that are just helping kind of keep the place safe and, you know, be medical uh, rescuers if necessary. Then you're like, then it's great. But this, you know, this one quote in here really brings up this other issue, which is this quote, a bunch of East Coast dinosaurs that support not paying patrols. I don't know why we keep joining, said a patroller from a Colorado resort asked not to be named. So in that regard, you're like, well, this National Ski Patrol is obviously a big part of larger ski areas. And at that point, you were like, these larger ski areas, you have the funds and there's obviously been a a big fight that we've talked about over the last couple of years with paying ski patrol a livable wage in these mountain towns. So you're like, so we're starting to cut into the fact that there's these free patrollers that you can get versus paying patrollers a better living wage to do the job that is essential to running a big ski area. So I I don't know exactly where to go to it other than the fact that like there has to be some sort of accountability, I think, on the big ski areas that like, no, we don't bring in National Ski Patrol because ultimately it undercuts the jobs and the paying jobs of people that dedicate their lives to these. A volunteer by nature is going to have another source of income or be retired or just live on a fixed income. So you're like, in that regard, they're not dedicating their lives to it. So I'm, I'm definitely conflicted about it. I would say this article really brings up the fact that like, this structure of the National Ski Patrol isn't working. Um, and it's structural. Like there's some stuff and some people like Brian Roll, who was brought up in this article many times over, who'd said some very horrible, horribly racist and bigoted stuff um, in his time. And it's it had it printed in one of the, the main National Ski Patrol magazines. You're just like, okay, like people like that, they need to go. But these issues are 
far deeper than that. They're structural. They're the way that, that the board is set up. They're the way that this whole entire thing is run. They're the way that they, they have their own medical qualifications that are vastly different. Um, and I've seen some commentary from antagonists to the National Ski Patrol that's saying like their their medical training is just completely like it's not it's not qualified enough to actually give good medical assistance to somebody that's injured on the ski area. That's obviously a commentator. I don't have much to say about that. I don't know. I'm not a rescuer by any means, but there's something structurally wrong with the, the National Ski Patrol. So I don't know where to leave this other than ultimately like a volunteer-based organization could be good for communities. When it starts to reach bigger than that, maybe that's when it starts to become a problem. Yep. And all we want to do here, and I will speak for you here, Cody, we just want to put this issue forward. So I think there, there is, I, I very much like how you put that, there is a question for us about the structural value of this, you know, a national organization for volunteers. So should that exist? Where should it exist? And then I think the second issue is very much not the structural question, but who the leadership presently is, right? That's not a structural thing, but my God, it sure sounds like some people need to go. If it is, say, decided, if, say, it were determined that there is a good reason for the National Ski Patrol to exist, that a better, more robust version of this could be created, I'm not sure that can happen under the current leadership at all. Well, and there's been attempts. There's been, that's what this article really goes yeah. into is the fact that there's been attempts to bring in new leadership. And then within a year or two, yeah. that person resigns and going like, whoa, this is still messed up. So that's where you're like, no, this is actually structural. If a new leadership can't even change what they're trying to change, which currently involves a lot of, um, a lot of action with diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. So it's like, and some of these things are like, if they're not being able to change, then this is this is structural. But wait, maybe we're saying the same thing with different terms. Okay. To me, that's not structural. That is, you need to get rid of certain individuals. Yes, I gotcha. Right? And so change the individuals and certain attitudes will be removed with them. And it very much, se that very much seems to be the case. For sure. It's kind of like what we were talking about with the gun stock last month yep. in a certain way where the board, the board is potentially dysfunctional. And I mean, the first paragraph of this article pretty much says as such. And actually, as an aside, as an update, we, we kind of I almost had forgot to update the gun stock thing. Yeah, that that kind of issue has seemed to get resolved. The, the bad actors on the board were removed. They were um, removed. Yes, and the Tom Day and the executive staff have come back to run Gunstock. Yep. So kind of it seems like the community won. Um, this was enacted by the community. The community really jumped forward and was the ones that pressured, created the votes and created the meetings to remove the bad actors on that board. Um, and it seems like things are moving more positive. So yeah. as we kind of talked about, like if the community wants us and enacts it, then hopefully they can resolve this. And they did. So the the situation seems pretty good at this point. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And 
congratulations to everyone in the gunstock community and and um it does seem like man what a roller coaster that was but it does seem at the moment things are in a good place and sort of where they should be in a best case scenario and we'll you know certainly wishing the best uh for all involved and hope that uh you know gunstock just survives and thrives totally I know it's we got a, I got a lot of personal comments of people that was like I don't you could tell that Gunstock was near and dear to a oh lot of people's God, hearts yes. like yes. a lot of people reaching out like that's my home mountain yep. I love that mountain I that thing has formed my childhood so when those kind of things survive and in a good way and they thrive you're like oh this is good for skiing this is good for outdoor sports so I, i'm really happy that it has resolved itself that the community did put up a good fight and ended up winning mm -hmm. speaking of community we should get back to our next uh topic this is definitely something that's been big in a, in the utah community and uh salt lake city little cottonwood canyon uh community has been kind of in uproar about this this is something i've been aware about for the last couple of years um something that's been talked about commented on but i've generally tried to stay out of it i actually multiple times as like kind of a public figure i've gotten asked to come and speak on behalf of of people for this issue. Um, and I just kind of stayed out of it because I'm like, I'm not a Salt Lake City local. I live in Tahoe. This seems like a community issue. But I think it's just gotten to the point where we should talk about this because there was a decision made. And so this, uh, this issue is the fact of based upon the desire to alleviate the traffic issues in Little Cottonwood Canyon, which having skied Little Cottonwood Canyon recently in the last few years, it the traffic issues there are insane, like absolutely incredible. I mean, the very first episode of the 50, the very first line we did, like the story went from like, oh, we're going to go ski Mount Superior to immediately halting because it took us an hour and 45 minutes to get from the base of Little Cotton, Little Cottonwood Canyon to the parking lot at Grizzly Gulch. It was like, oh, so... I, I didn't have to factor in traffic is going to be a hazard for this entire project, but but it is. And, you know, a lot of ski towns are dealing with traffic, but I think Little Cottonwood Canyon is definitely feeling the biggest effects right now. So so the state, the the local communities, they're trying to figure out a solution. And Utah Department of Transportation has determined as of a couple days ago that they want to build a gondola. Uh, the world's longest gondola, uh, an eight-mile gondola from the base of Littlewood Cotton Canyon all the way up the canyon to drop people off at Snowbird and Alta. So this is a very, very hot topic in Utah. Um, I wanted to play a little game with you where I'm going to be a critic, and I'm going to bring up what a lot of the critics are saying of why this is a bad idea, and then you come with the counterpoint. So this is not Jonathan being like, I'm going to be like, I'm pro-gondola. Um, this is just you playing the thought experiments okay. with this. So I've had five cups of coffee now, so I'm ready for this. Okay, cool. Um, and So... First off, I will a little bit more background. So when before they came up with this, they've in the last couple of years, they 
the Utah Department of Transportation said they evaluated hundreds of options to figure out how to deal with traffic there. Um, then they came up with five action items and ultimately um, narrowed it down to two main plans. One was the gondola yeah. and one was widen the road with rapid bus transport. So, you know, create a another lane that is strictly for buses. Um, those were the two plans they were going upon. They decided that the gondola had the cleanest uh, environmental impact survey and that it was the cheapest over a 30 year span. Hmm. Um, as it stands right now, it's a $550 million project, but we all know how projects kind of end up. It'll probably end up being about like a billion dollar project. You, most, most big, big development plans like these tend to go over budget and tend to go double over budget. So that's kind of one last background. And then I'm going to bring up here the critics are saying. So critic point one, number one, this is a taxpayer funded project that will benefit two businesses. So stops are only at Snowbird and Alta. You can't stop at White Pine for backcountry skiing or near Grizzly Gulch. Um, if you're a climber, a hiker, anything other than going to Snowbird or Alta, this gondola will not serve you. So ready? Yeah, ready. That's a completely stupid take. Ski tourism in the state of Utah is a massive economic driver. And I think that is incredibly indefensible to act as if two little businesses that are kind of, you know, not fundamental and key businesses in a certainly the broader Salt Lake City economy, but I would be willing to wager in just the broader economy of the state of Utah. That's just stupid. I'm going to start there. I like it. I like just going heavy, like going just, it's stupid. No, there is certain ways to look at it. You're like, well, I would guesstimate that 95% of the people going up Little Cottonwood Canyon are going to Snowbird or Alta. Fine. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I stand by this is stupid, but you keep going. Maybe you move me off my yeah, okay. post. Um, so uphill and downhill capacity is about a thousand people per hour. Um, so modern chairlifts, most modern detachables are running at 2,600 people per, per hour. So even at that, the capacity is not very good for this gondola. Wait, that's a different, you shift topics on me. First, we were just talking about this is a taxpayer-funded yeah. business that goes to two. So, wait a minute. I feel like you just moved the goalposts. No, I just went to the next point. You went to the next. Okay, I'm sorry. What right. critics are saying. Because right. um, we're just going to play this okay. game first, and then we'll end up talking about okay. it. So, critics are saying that... You know, it's only a thousand people per hour when most modern chairlifts do at 2,600 people per hour. So it's actually not going to create that big of a dent in the traffic itself, or it's not going to be that desirable because of the fact that like, yeah, it kind of moves people pretty slowly compared to most modern chairlifts. Do we have a, do we have speeds? How fast is this gondola going to go? I, yeah, you could get into those meters per seconds. I don't know, but a thousand people per hour and, you know, people per hour is a, is a fine, very metric. New, yeah, fine metric for, for ski areas. Hmm. 
I do like the idea of the super fast gondola, like even if it's sketchy, but like really makes it part of the experience where you're like, all right, buckle up kids. Like it's got to put your seatbelt on on this yeah, one. It's going to be a wild ride to the top. But uh, so I'm, I would be on the face of it pro let's speed the gondola up. Even if, even if it resulted in some bad accidents a couple times a year, I mean, like we're skiers, <laughs> crashes are part of it. <laughs> so, so, but you do agree that maybe that metric isn't good enough and needs to be improved of some sort. I would like to better understand like actual people moving capacities because yeah, I want to better understand what kind of dent this actually makes in terms of bodies moved. Totally. So this is some data and this is I was talking to someone that's within the ski industry that's worked at ski areas for most of their life and understands lifts. And that was what they kind of brought out because they, they know this data. So um, so it was an interesting one in general. Um, I'm going to go to, to critic number three, Okay. Critic, critical point number three. So at the base right now, they're going to create a parking lot with 2,500 parking spots. Absolutely necessity, ne uh, necessary if you're going to be driving to the gondola and then taking the gondola to go up the canyon. But as of right now, those parking spots are three quarters of a mile away from the gondola base. Uh -oh. So you're going to have to park and then get on a bus to then get to the gondola. Oh, wait, I have to counterpoint this? Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's good exercise <laughs> to walk a quarter mile. Wait, quarter mile or three quarters? Three, three, three quarters. Quarter. It's great exercise to walk three quarters of a mile carrying skis, maybe also your kids' skis in ski boots, you know, because now grip walk is more and more present, right? So, yeah, ski boots have never been better in terms of their ability to walk three quarters of a mile on icy parking lots. That is the counter argument to this. Yeah, except for the fact that, you know, you're going to be in Salt Lake City in the spring trying to go up and it's going to be hot. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like, uh, you're... You told me my job was to provide the counter arguments to the critics. Totally. I'm just following the rules here. Totally. Have you not heard all of the benefits of saunas and hot saunas yes. and so this is that <laughs> except in your kit in your ski gear you will be baking as if you are just have your own you know individual sauna keep going what else you got this is All easy right. counterpoint number four maybe a little bit of shady stuff going on um snowbird in 2021 bought 4.86 acres of land and it was just kind of a nondescript purpose, uh, purchase. But it turns out the exact spot that they bought was the exact spot of the gondola site, which the state would now need to repurchase. Um, and Snowbird execs uh, are on the board of Gondola Works, the, the organization that is pro the gondola plan. So there's a lot of people that are kind of coming up saying like, well, this is very much like corporate welfare. Like, not only is this going to be very beneficial for Alta and Snowbird, they're also kind of double dipping in land purchases and kind of being on the board of this pro thing. So you're like, why Why are they so for this and not other solutions? So counterpoint. This is just called smart business. I mean, if you found out that some 
abandoned parking lot somewhere near you was going to be, you know, purchased and bought and like turned into some very interesting business. And let's say you could get it for very cheap. You would look into purchasing that, Cody. You're not stupid. And so this is just called smart business. And I want my ski areas to do well and be profitable. And I applaud the smart business movement of uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, is a, this is a fun game. I like it. Um, yeah. There, I mean, it could be seen as shady. Um, it also could be seen as they were trying to make sure that they were for the gondola and they want to protect it. That someone else, like, I don't know, someone else that has the funds and doesn't want a gondola purchases it up and will not resell it. So you could say that, um, all in all, let's kind of maybe sum this up and maybe give more of our personal yeah. reflections. Cause I have been reading about this a bit. I will say a gondola up the, the Canyon has in many ways one of the best environmental solutions there is. The fact that you're going to limit cars that go up there, the, the, the amount of carbon that is burned for cars going up and down, the, the, the runoff that goes uh, off of roads into a very protected watershed in Little Codwood Canyon. Like you can't bring dogs up into there because of the watershed. Like we deal with that in Tahoe. Like one of the worst effects for pollution in the lake is just the cars that are driving around the road. So in many ways, a gondola is a really, really efficient energy um, solution to be bringing people up there. So there's some good sides to it. But what I've seeing from this is that it feels like it is a solution that isn't necessarily benefiting everybody, nor have they kind of exhausted all other options. Like to me, it got narrowed down to widening the road or a gondola. Two very, very big infrastructure products. Widening the road is going to create a lot of drainage issues. It's going to create a lot of debris. It's going to pollute the creek and it's going to tear up the canyon it doesn't seem like a great solution i think a lot of people would want that on the other side a gondola like yes it has some great environmental uh, um, equations to it but it's also going to be this massive gondola up this like beautiful canyon um some of the climbers and some of the the designations of where towers are going to go the climbers are saying like oh that's going to completely ruin this bouldering area this crag like we're never going to be able to go there again and so you're like you're putting in a big giant eyesore that ultimately does i i agree like it's not necessarily corporate welfare that it's dropping off at Alta and Snowbird, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Like it works for some skiers in the winter. And I will say it's only going to work for skiers in the winter on a certain amount of days. Like peak traffic days are going to be powder days and weekends. So if you really want to have a gondola up there that serves all users of Little Cottonwood Canyon, you got to have a few more stops. You got to have a drop off at known hiking areas, known climbing areas, like you, you make it serve more people. Um, to me, like this whole thing, like just feels like a little less thought out than I would like it to be. Um, I've talked to some people within the community that are against this gondola, but that believe that a gondola could be a good solution. They just want to explore other options, um, whether that's tolls, whether that's closing the canyon entirely to 
all traffic except for bus traffic or except for mass transport. Um, I feel like to me, it is like quite a big, big spend, a big impact for something that maybe has a better, simpler solution. Um, and that's all I say. And it, it, what I'm seeing in typical online discourse, it's either it's all bad or it's all good. And we're always here to try and bring like, no, there is some good sides. Um, again, talking to people that are like, think a gondola could be a good solution, that it's just not the solution the way it's framed right now. That issue with the the amount of people that it's going to bring up with the parking spots three quarters of a mile away and the fact that it only drops people off at two points is kind of an issue. And ultimately, I think like the majority of people are still going to be driving up there. I mean, it take it's going to take a lot of effort. Um, I don't know if they create a toll. I don't know if they like limit amount of traffic, whatever it is. But like they're going to have to do something to funnel people into a gondola so that it does alleviate the traffic issues. So let's then talk a little bit more about the gondola. I mean, first of all, how long is it going to take? Right. If because like we haven't really talked about the time yet, but if it's like, okay, I'm going to try to actually maybe be fighting for a spot in the lot that has twenty five hundred parking spaces. One, is it going to be the case that, yeah, you can often get a spot there Two, to then get on the bus to get to the gondola to then maybe have a pretty slow gondola? Like if it is going to take, say, twice as long as just hopping in your car and going, I do not like the odds of people actually actually adopting that. I think the more time it actually would save you, you know, from leaving your house to get up to Snowbird or Alta, that's going to be a critical component, I think, of adoption here. I just think realistically, if it is a good day and you're like, I can ski this morning and then I got to get back to work by, you know, 1 p.m. or something, people just won't actually use the gondola. So I think the devil is really in the details on that. And I actually think I'm more worried about that right now than implementing more stops. I agree. I think that's the biggest factor to me, too, is friction. Yep. Friction and pain points. Yep. If you create a solution that has more friction than the original, which is driving your car up there, parking exactly where you want to park, having your stuff in your car, and then getting out and going skiing. And if the gondola has more friction and more pain, then people aren't going to use it. Right. And so that's where you really have to be. be you either make the gondola with like less friction or you make driving with way more friction yep. being that there's you have to pay a toll every time you go up there you're only allowed to go up there if you have four people in your car or you know something has to be so that the environmental solution is an easier solution than the the not environmental solution which is continuing to drive up in your car hey so what are your thoughts about completely banning individual cars from coming up the canyon and so going to a system where it is all buses only buses that would run frequently they would need to run frequently what are your thoughts on that i think that's the quickest and best solution like i it seems painful it's a big change for a lot of people um i try and frame it in what would it 
be like in my hometown if you could not drive the two mile drive up olympic valley they banned all cars in there and you only allowed buses and then they had buses every 15 minutes going through my local neighborhood through the main road you're like i could get used i would have to get used to it but okay I'll get used to it. That'll be the way I do things from now on. I honestly think that is the best solution. And I know there'll be probably a lot of backlash to that. Um, I know it seems really painful, but this brings me back to just the entire talk of environmentalism and climate change in general is there is going to be friction and pain points. There is going to be changes that we're all going to have to make. I know like... We hear it a lot. The systematic change is the only thing that is going to get us out of this mess. But the thing with systematic change is that it is going to end up creating change on the individual level. And I think if you do care about climate change, if you do care about the environment and you have the means to do it, meaning you have the funds, you should try to make changes in your own life. And, you know, I think... Closing the canyon to all cars except for bus traffic, it would be an example of that. It's going to be a little bit painful. You'll probably quickly get used to it, but then it's going to work and be more environmental. Um, Maybe that's not the best solution. Maybe that's oversimplified. Maybe I'm not thinking of everything. Like one of the, the, the main factors of a gondola that is beneficial is when they're doing avalanche control, um, high avalanche days, they can run the gondola. If you have avalanche control day, you can't run buses. So you're going to get a backup. You're going to have probably a backup of 50 buses at the bottom, and then you're all going to go up together. So, you know, there's, I, I don't know the exact solution. I do have this general feeling from this, this project that it isn't the best solution. And I think people do want to figure out what the best solution is. There is a lot of backlash to this gondola project. I think you can get a little inflamed and not think about it and not think about the fact that we all have to change and you might have to be a part of that change. But I do think this one, he, there's enough friction and pain points that I don't know if it's going to work all that well. That's a massive project to undertake when you're like, I sure hope this works. So, you know, I'd also kind of, because of the scope and the time this is going to take and the money this is going to take, you sure do hope <laughs> that we can get the smartest people with the most experience weighing in on this and actually being heard. And we'd let, sort of like that to be always true when it comes to any big change, you know, on a national, international level, whatever. I'm not sure that's the way the world always works. Actually, I'm sure that's the way the world does not always work. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And I mean, look, on the face of it, if our options are just, we go a gondola route and hopefully there would be time to optimize that plan. If it is either that or widen the road, I'm still team gondola. I would say I'm, I am too. And talking to people within that community, I think there is like, no, we'd rather have it. But it does kind of feel a little bit like it got narrowed down to like, practically a presidential election where you're like, ah, I don't like either of these options all that much, but I'm going to go with the slightly better option. And I think that's where people are feeling with this is that they're like, it doesn't 
quite work for everybody. And it doesn't, there's enough friction and pain points, this isn't going to work. So um, I will say if people do have a stake in this, if they care about this, there is a public comment period right now. Um, so it actually opened up as of today. So go search out for the, the public comment period um, and go search out and put your, let your feelings be known. And, you know, definitely make it educational. Um, it was funny. I was talking to someone recently within government and they were talking about how those forum emails, you know how you ever get those like send this forum email um, and just sign your name to it. They say they don't work like really, really don't work because the people, the politician sees one and then they just get annoyed by them and they get more and more annoyed by them. So put your feelings in there, write a quick paragraph of why you don't want this, why you do want this, whatever your feelings are, put it a personal touch to it. And those things can have an impact. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, it's definitely very controversial right now. Where are we going next? So this was a pretty fascinating article that was in the San Francisco Chronicle um, done by one of my uh, favorite outdoor writers, Greg uh, Gregory Thomas, and he writes a lot about kind of the Sierra and whatnot for the the uh, the Chronicle. And um, this is an interesting one that I never thought about it, but that the one pound propane cylinders, you know, those green Coleman cylinders that you use for your outdoor stoves, um, California could be the first state to ban those. And when I first saw this, I was like, wait, well, then how are you going to cook your food? Like you just ban those. And it goes into the article talking about like, no, they have refillable solutions, but these are just the kind of thing that's most used because they're a single use product. They're easy to purchase. They're like 15 bucks and you just throw it in and then you get rid of it. And the problem environmentally is like they're rarely empty. They rarely get recycled. So they're getting thrown into landfills half full and just have gas leaking in the, you know, propane leaking in the environment, leaking in the dirt. Um, pretty interesting because to me, like, these are those small little things you don't really think about that that can actually have a pretty big impact. And the fact that there is a decent solution being that you just have a refillable one um, is out there, then you're just going to be pushing people into a refillable one. Some of the data about the Yosemite of how many of these things are thrown away every year is just remarkable. So um, kind of a cool, interesting thing that makes you think that like, again, goes along these lines of like, yeah, we're all going to have to change. There is little things that we're all going to have to change in our lives. And it could be a little painful, right? When we, when you start, but then you'll quickly get used to it. So, um, I don't know, it's kind of, I, I never thought about those individual use and kind of the environmental impacts that they have. Hmm. All right. Is it time to sneak in the most Canadian news? Oh, Yes. I really did not think you were going to have anything this month. And then I was like, that's just going to kill this segment. And you're like, I got two things. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, he's keeping it going. I was, I, I didn't, I have not had faith in you on this and you have proven my lack of faith to be silly. So um, what do you have for us this month? So um, this was a great headline. Canada's invasive wild pigs are building pigloos <laughs> to survive the winter. And I love this sub headline. <laughs> It sounds cute, but it's bad. 
<laughs> pigloos do sound cute for sure. Yeah, like a pigloo. They have a picture of a pigloo. It's amazing. They like little little mini pigloos. Um, so I mean, it is bad because they're getting these invasive pigs. Like wild pigs are pretty crazy at what they could do and how plentiful they had, and they'd end up just like tearing shit up and like destroying environments. And like they are invasive in certain areas. Um, of Canada. They're coming across the border, moving up further north, and then, you know, destroying underbrush, destroying kind of like food for other animals and whatnot. They're not necessarily part of the natural environment of Canada. But the fact that they're building pigloos, like little shelters to survive, it's just so Canadian. Like the fact that like probably half of Americans think that people in Canada live in igloos. Like I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, it's amazing to me. When I was living in Santa Cruz, I remember I was working at restaurants and I was like uh, dating Elise. And we remember we went up to Alaska to visit her family. And like literally like a woman that I worked with was like, do, do they like live in igloos up there? And you're like, wow, we really don't know about Alaska, do we? <laughs> like, like, no, we, they, they have homes. It's pretty temperate up there so like the fact that like we're reinforcing canadian stereotypes and northern stereotypes by pigs living in igloos is <laughs> just perfect. great it's perfect by the way little teaser next week on the blister podcast one of our favorite canadians is going to be on the show chris rubens is going to be on Oh, yeah. Nice. And talking oh, my about Canadians. Right. And so talking about in this series we're doing on like mountain towns and local food systems. Mm. So we're basically talking about Chris has been doing some very, very interesting stuff in BC. And so uh, we'll be talking with Chris about farming and what he's doing up there. And but now, of course, we're going to have to ask about pigloos and get his take on pigloos. What if Chris <laughs> is like, it's the best thing ever. I don't yeah. care about the consequences. Yeah. I am here for pigloos. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, we live. We have some pigloos around. We build them for them. It's like super Canadian. <laughs> get awesome. to welcome them. We wanted yeah. to be hospitable to the feral pigs. <laughs> so, yeah, he probably is. He's probably building pigloos for him right now. Speaking of someone that's probably getting even less sleep than us right now because oh, yeah. he just had a fresh kid so he's in month one <laughs> is that what you call them fresh kids oh yeah it's fresh, it's kids. fresh. okay <laughs> it's true it's true well i'm looking forward to that conversation and uh yeah we'll we'll get we'll talk to an actual canadian to get their take on the pigloo issue to see whether it's cute or a bad thing yeah, it's totally. You'd probably okay. be like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no pigs up here. This is it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news. All right. That was the most Canadian news story for the month of August. What else you got? Um, this was one in the department of, okay, what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah. Um, this was an article on Truth Out, and the headline is, Big Oil Wants to Refreeze Alaska Permafrost. So it could keep drilling there, <laughs> which Sorry. you're just like, what? And you read the article and it doesn't get any better. They're literally ConocoPhillips wants to put chillers in the Alaska tundra so that it can continue to build infrastructure, namely pipelines and drilling apparatuses on the permafrost. So 
the thing that they are doing, which is actively melting the permafrost, they are trying to reverse so they can quick more quickly warm up the permafrost. I just like this to me, like we try and take a lot of like measured takes on stuff. This to me is just like all along the way. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, we need to draw a line here. This is you can't drill in the Arctic in Alaska because the permafrost is melting because of climate change. So instead of stopping drilling, you're just going to try to refreeze the permafrost with like refrigeration units for the ground. Like just stop. Well, and to me, actually, this is just such an interesting particular example of the broader question, right? Of how, we transition. And honestly, this can get at the broadest level of talking about cultural transitions. But in this case, the massive question of how we transition from different energy sources, right? From one to another. And, you know, like, on the one hand, there is always going to be that group of people who correctly say, hey, we still need fuel right now. We still need fuel today, right? And I understand that. And I think that this is the dynamic, the significant dynamic, because others who are like, okay, well, yeah, we need fuel today, but we are far more concerned about long-term, very real consequences if we just stick with the status quo. And that's going to be the back and forth on all of these things. And I sometimes wish that both sort of parties could or at least would be willing to understand and take more seriously the other side. But this just seems like one of those examples where we don't give a shit. We just want to continue to figure out how we keep making money in the very near term. And we're just like, let all the rest be damned, but let's wring every last drop of profit out of an, a technology that will go away. No question, right? It will go away. But like, we don't care. We don't want to hear it about transitions. Let's just maximize profit by going through the most perverse steps to do this, right? The thing is, and like, I see this argument. It was like, oh, petroleum's in your tires and petroleum's in this and you have petroleum's in so many household goods and it's never going to go away. And that is like an argument why we can't ban like petroleum in its entirety. And you're like, well, yes, of course, like most environmentalists know that like we are going to be reliant on petroleum. But like currently a majority of our energy around the world is run on petroleum. If we decrease that, then we're not going to have to keep drilling, opening up places in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. If we transition to more green energy, more renewable energy, then we're going to minimize it and we're not going to have to destroy habitats and refreeze the permafrost in Alaska. Um, so like people, people know that. And one of the things too, which is really interesting. So I saw this, the, you know, the inflation reduction act, which was a terribly named thing, but obviously has some really good climate policies and obviously it's some counterpoints that are pretty bad as well. Um, one of the interesting things was that they're, you know, 
part of Mansion's provisions was that they speed up the process to new drilling, opening up more lands. The funny thing is what I've read about a lot of oil leases and these and new drilling spots is that it's not been permitting that has been the issue. Like there is massive amounts of open swaths of land that are permitted currently to drill. But oil companies and their financiers are not seeing the benefit and the long-term profit in opening up these new lands and starting to drill on it. Because they, you know, the money behind them knows that this is a dying industry. So investing billions of dollars into drilling new areas is not something we want to do. So when, when people were talking about during this last gas price spike as being like, we need to speed up drilling, speed up new areas, you're like, well, that's the market. The capital market is saying like, that's not going to be beneficial. Pure, outright, unchecked neoliberal capitalism saying like, that's actually a bad idea. So ultimately, that hasn't been the issue. So to continue to like, push like, hey, we need to rephrase the permafrost so we can develop new areas for drilling. It seems like it's kind of backwards to where the whole market is going. Um, you know, it was pretty well documented that Trump tried to sell off a bunch of land, um, the Trump administration, a bunch of land in on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling. They just didn't get any bidders. No one would bid on it. They were like, no, we don't. This is, doesn't make financial sense. So the good thing to me is that I think the market is kind of dictating that we are going to be switching to renewable energy sources soon and the financiers behind it. And I think we as a government and individuals need to push that even a little bit harder. So this article, yeah, it was just kind of this like, what are we fucking doing here? I have nothing to add to that. Where are we going? A little mountain town advice, which um, you've been so deep in it. We didn't get a ton of new stuff, but we you pulled one up. This is this is a good one. Yeah, um, and we need to get better about reminding people. So we will try to do that. Except probably I won't do that before our next one. But I'm going to say that we will try. But people. Submit your mountain town advice questions. You can do that on Instagram. You can write in on our website where it says contact us and just title your email uh, mountain town advice. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do what we do here. So this one came in from Noah and he says, hi, I'm a big fan of blister and Cody. That's weird. Yeah. Super I mean, weird. <laughs> I know a lot of people that are big fans of blister, but I go, all right, whatever. Tomato, tomato. Noah says, uh, I love your podcasts. I'm the 101st listener. See, this is why Cody's the worst. Uh, no one should be a big fan of Cody. The whole <laughs> 101st listener thing. It's <sighs> Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please rate and review the show. You know, let's bump those up. No, I do kind of like the whole 101st listener thing. But um, Cody, you're the best and the worst simultaneously. Anyway, Noah, I want to ask about how to find and be more involved in the mountain sport community. I have been incredibly lucky to be part of an amazing community of rock climbers who have taught me everything I know, but I have, in recent years, developed a passion for climbing peaks and snowboarding down them. I don't yet have the time and resources to live in a mountain town year-round. I live in my car in the Rockies for a few months during the winter, and I don't yet have the ability to hire guides all the time. So I'm wondering what are some of the ways to find others that share the same passion and learn the skills with and from them? 
Great question, Noah. It is. Thanks for being the 101st listener too. Cody, what are your thoughts? It's a tough question. Um, and I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this because I have like five friends and they're just my friends and I don't <laughs> meet new people and I don't even like, I don't even like have time for those five friends anymore. So, you know, you just get old and you kind of like narrow down your friend group and you just like, wow, I don't even hang out with anybody anymore. And like a new person, I comes into my life and i'm like sorry dude i have no time for you <laughs> i already I'm... have five this this uh this ship is full no more room on the lifeboat yeah i can't have six six is too much so maybe not the best person like i ultimately at heart i've always been a bit of a loner like mm. i definitely love my friends but at the same time i've always been very comfortable to be by myself so um maybe not the best person but in the same time how did i meet those five friends <laughs> so I would say like the biggest thing is just going to community events, um, going to whether that's a ski movie premiere, whether that's like some sort of avalanche symposium, whether that's some sort of just like local club backcountry users, just show up, show up to those things. You'll start to meet people just being at the trailhead over and over and over, being a recognizable face, you'll start to recognize more people. You start to introduce yourself and you start to get out there. So, um, you know, I kind of look back and like one of the things when I started my pro skier career, I was so obsessed with trying to be a professional skier that like I just showed up. So whether that was every ski movie that came through town, I showed up to. And I would, whether it was my friends already at that point or trying to introduce myself to the filmmakers or trying to just get to know some of the athletes, um, whether that was going to avalanche symposiums, going to like these weekly trainings of, of avalanche gear that I would show up to going to SIA, just showing up over and over and over. And eventually you just kind of get to know people and it becomes much more natural. Um, I think that's like, it definitely feels awkward to be like sitting at a trailhead and being like, Hey, do you want to go out? But like, you show up there three or four times and you see the same people, eventually it's going to be like a natural kind of thing. Like, Hey, where are you going? I'm going here. You want to go ski together? Those are the kind of things I think just showing face over and over and over is a natural way to end up meeting people and like having good partners in the backcountry. Mm -hmm. Couple things to say here. First of all, shout out to the entire rock climbing community because the the climbing community does this better than any other sport out there that I'm aware of in terms of the whole like <laughs> volunteer mentorship um, that is so baked in and ingrained in, I think, climbing culture. Um, and I think the climbing community, it is, I don't even know, like it is just still sort of magically built into that culture. Now, Noah already says, I mean, he's the one who acknowledges his amazing community of rock climbers who have taught him everything he knows. So that is consistent with Noah's experience. But he is asking a very specific question about, I want to be climbing peaks and backcountry splitboarding, right? We have talked a lot about, yo, be careful about who you are going into the backcountry with. And I do think that there is a dynamic there that just is different than in climbing where the like, we'll show up at the trailhead and be like, Hey folks, can I tag along with you? Like I wouldn't 
be comfortable with that. So if it's okay for me to narrow Noah's question here, I think a big thing is get involved in the local avalanche center if you are in a place that has one, right? Start donating. Ask about volunteer opportunities there. Absolutely go to fundraiser events or movie premieres. Um, I know that isn't happening in every mountain town, but if you are near one where that is a thing, do that and start to get involved with that local outfit. You will absolutely start to meet like-minded people that way. So that's actually my first bit of advice. I think as I was thinking about this too, if we switched sports and someone's like, I go to this mountain town, I love mountain biking, well then get involved with the local mountain bike association. There are community days, there are trail maintenance days, 100% get plugged into those things. So I think those would be the most obvious ways to sort of do this. And then yes, Cody, in addition to like, well, if there are movie premieres and the rest, like find more things to show up to. Exactly. So I hope that helps for you, Noah. Just show up, show face. Well, there's a lot of good community things. I do think it brings up a good point of just in the fact that like, you know, in climbing, you're at a crag, you're at a spot down there. You can like hang out and talk with people and skiing. We're at the trailhead and then we're gone. And like you said, like someone new comes up to me and they're like, can I go ski with you? Like it's probably very, very rare. I'm going to say yes, because you're like, well, I'm bringing someone into this fold that I'm going to be potentially, you know, relying on for safety or making good decisions. And then all of a sudden they're a part of it. And I have no idea who that person is. Um, more community events for backcountry skiers could be a good thing, whether that is organized group days of being like, hey, let's all go out in the backcountry today. Um, we tailor around avalanche conditions, creating that kind of community could be could be really good for a backcountry skiing. Yeah. And, and then one more thing to note too is show up to snow science courses, right? Um, show up there. You're going to meet other people who are literally trying to get instruction in exactly the thing you want to do. And so, you know, take refresher courses, take intro courses, but that's just another obvious opportunity. And, you know, it's good for all of us, I mean, to be participating in those things more. So, cool. So, next thing, last, last little thing. What are we reading and watching these days? What have you been? <laughs> I am reading nothing other than reading and working on our massive winter buyer's guide. So shout out to our whole team on that front. This thing goes to the printer in like on the 7th, September 7th is going to then be shipped from the printer. I think we're saying like around the September 16th or 17th. And so we'll quickly be in the hands of, well, North Americans very shortly after that. And then the rest of the world, we don't control printing, but you'll get it soon. So honestly, like that is what I am reading and or creating right now. Couple podcasts I wanted to shout out. Um, Dave Chang, my beloved Dave Chang, my favorite chef whose restaurants I've never yet eaten at. And I very much hope to do that at some point. But on the Dave Chang podcast, Dave Chang is now talking about my other favorite thing in the world, which is the bear the show, The Bear, that I've told you about, 
which is a show about a kitchen and a chef and a group of chefs. So my favorite chef, Dave Chang, talking about the bear is basically all of my favorite things coming together in one place. Highly recommended. Also, have you yet watched the bear? Nah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I haven't been watching too much lately. Just like it's it's hard to find that much time. Been kind of watching a little bit more sports. Now we're almost into football season. Oh, so shit. we can turn this into a football yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, but no, I haven't watched it. But it's like if I'm going to watch my next show, that is going to be the bear. Like okay. I've heard nothing but the most amazing things about it. So do I still need to gift you with a subscription so that you can actually watch the bear? Yeah, can you share your uh, password and username right now? Share it with me. No, I'm just going to... It'll be a gift. It'll okay. be a gift. Yeah, if you start denigrating our, our uh, listener stats on this show, I'm going to gift you with a subscription. So you okay. can... I don't know if you actually want to accept that offer. <laughs> it might be less fun. Yeah, I know. I mean, why would I lie about saying that there's like thousands of listeners? It's just like, I don't want to do that. Like, just so I can get a free Hulu subscription. No, I'm going to tell the truth. We're all about uh, the truth here. Uh huh. What are you listening to, if not watching? Um, so I did finish The, the Boys. Um, are which you we totally about. caught up? Yeah, I, I finished season three. So that's all there been, is. It's three seasons. Three seasons. So it took me a couple months to fi finish, but I finished it. Um, still very entertaining, highly watchable show with great acting and great characters. I will say it feels a little absurdist at times, and it feels like there's a lack of direction from like a thirty thousand viewpoint level, um, thirty thousand foot viewpoint level. Because, like, some of the episodes just go so wild. Like, there's an episode where there's all of a sudden, like, a musical song and dance in it. And you're like, wait, where are we going here? And then all of a sudden, cart animated cartoon characters get put in. And you're just like, I feel like at certain times, they're just, like, cobbling a bunch of stuff together that they found interesting and throwing it in an episode. And so it feels a little like there's a lack of cohesion to it and a lack of, like... We're sticking to a structure. We're sticking to a way we film this. We're sticking to kind of how we do this. Like one of the things I kind of got a little like over in season three, like there are some parallels to modern day politics and a modern day society. Like ultimately it is trying to show what if superheroes were a part of our everyday lives and what it would look like. And there's, there's kind of this corporate overlords kind of theme. There's some fascist elements. There's some right-wing media elements. But then it gets like so pointed where you're just like, okay, like this is a little bit much. Like I am a big fan of Saturday Night Live. Lisa and I watch it quite you a bit. You still watch it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Huh. Um, here and there. And it's like, we'll watch a couple episodes here and there, and especially when there's a good guest. But when it was in the Trump administration, I will say like from a, viewpoint of a person that's been a fan of Saturday Night Live for a long time, it just got a little too like on the nose political. Like they would open every single show. Their cold open would be like a skit about Trump. And then they would literally just repeat what Trump said in the headlines that week. And you're like, it's not that funny. That's like it was kind of ridiculous when he said that, but just repeating what he said is not that funny. And they did some of the similar stuff in this show. Like there is this whole like taco bowls kind of joke and you're kind of like okay like we're just getting too pointed we're getting too detailed like 
I'm not a fan of Trump. That's that guy sucks beyond belief in so many different ways. But when you're just going like the joke is so obvious that you're like, well, then now it's just not even funny. So there was elements of the show. I'm like, okay, it could it could have a little bit better of a direction, a little bit better of a showrunner, not try and be so on the nose, a little bit more abstract. But ultimately, I still really like the show and the characters are really good um, in it. And it seems like they're setting it up for a season four. Ironically, one of the funnier things about it is like it is a critique on the Marvel comic universe and like so many of that. And it itself is turning into it that there's like multiple spinoff shows. There's series that is coming wow. into it. Like it's becoming its own Marvel comic universe uh -huh. on Amazon because it's been so successful. So um, ultimately, I like the boys. I think it's worth a watch. There's some flaws in it uh, from what I've seen. Okay. I think you and I need to develop a system where like it's kind of a scale of one to ten. And if one of us is like, I'm calling this a 10, that means the other one of us has to watch it or listen to it or whatever. Yeah, totally. The bear, I probably am just saying like, I'm sorry, that's a 10. I don't care yeah. what you're interested in. I'm saying you have to watch this and I'm putting that on you. Are you calling the boys a 10 for me? No, I'd call it a seven. Okay. Maybe there's parts of it that are an eight, but parts of it that are a seven. So it's like, honestly, like, I think it was fun. I'm kind of more into that kind of stuff. I think I talked about it early. Like, I am kind of a sucker for superhero stuff. Um, and so, like, it's good. It's watchable. I like it a lot. I will continue to like it. Um, but seven, maybe eight okay. at best. So. Another related question, because my memory is in the trash right now. You have watched Better Call Saul? Yes. And you're caught up? Uh, no, I'm still a season behind because it's not on Netflix, the newest season. I'm okay. like season five, I think I finished, and not season six, which I think is the newest one. Better Call Saul to me is a 10. Okay, like, so I, I have I love, to. I don't know I what love. my deal is. I am such a massive fan of Breaking Bad. I yeah. think the writers on Better Call Saul are incredible, and yet I have not carved out the time to do it. I don't. I. Yeah. I, I still. We've talked about this. I don't know yeah. what's wrong with me here. So if you're calling it a ten, then it's like, all right. Well, I don't have a choice anymore. I have it's to just get it done. It's really good. Okay. I just. I think the writing and the acting on that is amazing, and it comes from obviously the Breaking Bad yeah. universe, which is they are really good showrunners and really yeah. good writers and really good directors. And yeah, I think that's an amazing, an amazing show. Um, I like. I I was in the same boat. I remember thinking I was like, oh, this is just some stupid spinoff, and then I got watched it and I got so sucked into it. Mm -hmm. So now, okay. when, when season six comes out on Netflix, I'm guaranteed going to be watching that. Okay. My last thing, and I can do this pretty quick. The Lex Friedman podcast, Lex ran a conversation with Magnus Carlson, who we've talked about before in reviewing the news and sort of Magnus and the whole, my whole Queen's Gambit take um, my favorite show like of all time or up there with my, literally up there with my favorite shows of all time. But we got to have Magnus Carlson, who is arguably the greatest chess player of all time, answering questions from Lex about the question of who is the greatest of all time. And his Magnus's answers are so nuanced and thoughtful 
on that question, it very much reminds me if like Michael Jordan was in an interview at the peak of his powers and he was actually providing really thoughtful analyses about, you know, LeBron James's playing style versus, you know, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's style and different elements of their games and their careers. It was fascinating. And I will always be, regardless of the discipline, anytime you are talking with either the GOAT or in the conversation for top two all time, having them do a sophisticated analysis about their fellow goat contenders. I'm here for it every single time. And I don't care what discipline we're talking about. If it's trumpet playing, if it's football, if it's quarterbacks, if it's the best chess player of all time, it's, I just find that endlessly fascinating. So that is a fantastic conversation. Um, that's what I got. That's all I got. It's funny. I was picturing what if Michael Jordan was on that podcast and it would be like a two minute podcast. He's like, well, I'm the greatest. Yeah. Why are we having this? What are you doing? Yeah, but I'm obviously yeah. the greatest. Except, in <laughs> fairness, no, I'm a, yeah. in fairness, Jordan actually, I mean, he's been asked this question. Actually, he's yeah. probably been asked this question more than anyone in history. He is always very charitable, especially mm-hmm. yeah. to the players that came before him. Yeah. And he, he, his actual answer to that, which I, I well, yeah, your point though, I mean, he is the most... M- egomaniacal, monomaniacal competitor uh, ever. And I actually kind of like that about him. But he always says, like, I didn't play against many of these players. Jordan always goes to, I didn't play against him, so I can't answer the question. Now, Jordan versus LeBron, there's zero part of Michael Jordan that thinks LeBron James is a better basketball player than him. Not an ounce, zero ounces. But for, for, for guys that Jordan didn't actually play against, that's his answer. And he's like different era. I didn't play against. Can't say. Yeah. Makes sense. But Magnus just goes into this level of talking about, I mean, he is a student of chess And so he talks about different strengths and weaknesses of all of these different players in a way that I'm just like, okay, this is the best. And he also is not shy about his own abilities. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) I got to listen to that just uh, because I've been, that's the thing. I listen to a lot of podcasts and especially because I've been doing a lot of training, um, a lot of time running, a lot of time spent on the bike, a lot of time in the gym lately. So that's why I just put in podcasts quite often, unless I need a little extra boost of energy, then I'll throw on some music. Um, but I was going to throw in some, uh, some podcasts that I've been listening to because I get that question a lot. And a lot of my podcasts, I'm just like, whatever, They're, a lot of them are sports. A lot of them are about like the 49ers and the Giants. And, you know, you, we've been talked about uh, fans of like, uh, like a lot of the ringer podcasts, but like a couple that I've been finding pretty interesting like we've talked about it before Derek Thompson plain English I've been finding really really um good the Ezra Klein show um I've been finding really interesting Derek Thompson and Ezra Klein are very similar in the way they present stuff I feel like but ultimately I do like both of their shows um 
pretty on topic to mod, like what's going on right at this time, but a more thoughtful conversation about it. Um, but the one I found the most surprising, and I texted you this, um, was Lebatard and Friends, the South Beach sessions, which like Dan Lebatard, people don't know him. He was a ESPN commentator, had an ESPN show forever, has left ESPN and is kind of doing his own thing now. I will say I was not a fan of Lebatard yeah, when he was on ESPN. I thought I was like loud, boisterous, and gimmicky. His show, the South Beat Sessions, are just interesting interviews with interesting people, and it's just him. He is one of the best interviewers I've come across. Like the way he asks questions is so good. And I've kind of realized this guy, Dan Lebatard, is like a journalist at heart. And he's a really good journalist at heart. And the way he approaches subjects and the way he gets people to talk, I think is one of the best demonstrations of, of good interviewer techniques of any podcast I've listened to. Um, really interesting. And it, like almost from the viewpoint of like, yes, like his subjects are really good, but I actually like listening to the way that Levitard is interviewing people. Um, it, it's pretty, pretty good. Like, cause he's not, attacking but he gets people to defend their points he's makes people like elucidate on this subject in a really unique way in the shortest way possible like i really i've really enjoyed the way he interviews people so that was a surprising one um and a, and a good show i've been starting to like comes out like once a week it's like 30 40 minutes but every episode so far that i've listened to recently has been really good and that is what we're reading and watching yeah is our work here done? I think our work here is done. Well, hey, man, that ran the gamut from gondolas yeah. to pigloos to everything else in the world. Always fun to see where we end up going. Let's see. It's September 2nd. What's your September like? I'm going to go camping this weekend, which I'm nice. actually trying to get out of here and start packing up. Um, and that's, that should be kind of good. Otherwise, no, um, just... Same old, same old. Working on making 50 episodes. We're like three or four episodes in on the back end um, of that. So getting ready for... A when are you going to start rolling some out? October 5th is uh, the first episode that will come out. And then every two weeks from then on out. So that's coming down the pipeline. Um, plugging hard on that. Plugging hard on uh, planning for next season. Um, training, raising a kid. All the normal work. I still have an idea. I think we, you and I talked about it one time really briefly, but I still have an idea that I want to pitch you called currently the 51st Project, maybe. One thing, one mission. We've talked about it. I don't know if you remember this. And no, we'll, I don't. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you when we're done recording, but uh, okay. I, I think it would be a fun one. Yeah. I know I'm getting more and more, like, it's getting to the time. I'm getting closer to the end who knows when the end's gonna come but i am actually having to think about like well what comes next after i'm done with the 50 yeah. um so I, I actually do have a lot of different ideas um some very fun and basic some interesting kind of extensions of the 50 um we'll see where it goes i, I don't know but i definitely still we got plenty of episodes this year and i got more lines to try next year and see see what happens well hey man as always, appreciate it. And uh, not as fresh, not as fresh of a kid as Rubens's kid, but, you know, go uh, relieve Elise, please. And yeah. tell her that I say hello and tell her 
to not be mad at me for keeping you this long. Okay. And I that will. I love her. Okay. <laughs> okay. I will. I'll make Thanks. sure. So when I go upstairs, I'll be like, God, Jonathan just keeps me on for so long. It's just such an asshole. That's what I'll say. And there's only like 40 people who listen to this thing. It's exactly. I'm so sorry, Elise. So, so sorry. Yeah. I'm doing this out of the kindness of my heart. The only thing. Just trying to support little old Blister. Exactly. Well, say hi to Elise and Indy. And I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And do not forget to submit those Mountain Town advice questions if you would like Cody and me to go over those. And also, please don't forget that we currently have a pre-order going on our winter buyer's guide and you should hurry up and take advantage of that pre-order before it goes away maybe you know it's a holiday so maybe i'm gonna like just tell lou Kappa we're gonna extend it for a day or two but hurry up get in on that pre-order or just become a blister member and then you get the kitchen sink you get everything we do around here and we are doing more and more around here and Blister members are going to have access to all of it. So either become a Blister member or go ahead and pick up the biggest winter buyer's guide in the world. If you hurry up, you'll still get it on the pre-order. Okay, that's it. We've got more great podcasts coming at you this week on our other channels. And so subscribe to Off the Couch and Crafted and bikes and big ideas and gear 30 and then we'll be talking to you real soon thanks everybody